0: So we're going to talk about Livy's book, The Early History of Rome, and I'd like to start out our discussion by uh, quoting him regarding the study of history in general. So here's what he says about the study of history. Quote, the study of history is the best medicine for a sick mind. For in history, you have a record of the infinite variety of human experience plainly set out for all to see. And in that record, you can find for yourself and your country, both examples and warnings. Find things to take as models, base things, rotten through and through to avoid. So in your mind, do you believe that uh, Livy finds the study of history to be important? Yes. Yes, yes he believes studying history is very important. Uh, But it's especially important for a Christian to read history uh, through biblical lenses, uh, understanding that all of the events and all of the players in history have been put there by God and they have been predestined by God to fulfill His purposes in history. And in reading history, we can see God's faithfulness to his covenant people. Even reading pagan history, you can see God's faithfulness to his covenant people. So reading Livy is a good way that we can look at and we can praise God for his purposes uh, in the early history of Rome. So during the reign of Emperor Augustus from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14, Latin literature entered into what we know as his the golden age. The golden age of literature. So we have uh, the poet Virgil writing his epic poem. Anybody know the name of his epic poem? Nope. The Aeneid. The Aeneid, which we will be reading in a few weeks. Um, the And the Aeneid traces the glory of Rome back to Aeneas, which is... Uh, Rome's original founder, along with Romulus and Remus, so in the the realm of prose, remember we have poetry, Virgil, then we have prose what's prose when I say that? not poetry, just pros, standard yeah. writing uh, we have uh, uh, we have this historian Titus Livius that's his name Titus Livius, which whom we know as Livy he also chronicled the greatness of Rome and he lived uh, in and wrote in the golden age of Rome and so he lived from 59 B.C. to A.D. 17 and although not much is known about his personal life, certain things can be deduced from his works. Um, He writes it's hard, it's impossible to know this since we're reading a translation but he writes using very polished Latin It's kind of like uh, William Shakespeare uses very polished English to write. And so he used very polished Latin. He did not use the Latin of the commoners. He had very, very polished Latin. So it was assumed that Livy was well-educated, and and it was assumed that he is from an aristocratic family or, or a wealthy family which would have provided this kind of education for him. Um, He also tends to show more sympathy to the senatorial parties in his history. Uh, And, of course, there's no record of him going into politics or anything like that. And considering he wrote uh, 142 books on the history of Rome, uh, ranging from 753 B.C. all the way to 9 B.C., he probably didn't have much time for going into politics or for doing anything else. And so Livy writes down his history of Rome, concerning the people that lived there, concerning those who built up the monarchy and those who tore down the monarchy. He writes about those who put together the Roman Republic and then eventually the empire. And uh, uh, Robert Algib's introduction to Livy's history says this. It says, quote, Livy accepted a tradition going back to Aristotle especially to the rhetoric, and to Thucydides, which explained historical events by the characters of the persons involved. As Aristotle said, actions are a sign of character. Because people are the sort of people that they are, they do the sort of things that they do. And the job of a historian is to relate what happens to the appropriate character, end quote. And that's what Livy's trying to do. Livy not only tells us what happened during the history of Rome, but he also tries to show us why these things happened and what motivated people to either uh, be courageous and brave for the homeland or to betray those in the homeland. Uh, He also shows us that not only did certain laws come about, but why those laws came about. And so this gives us a perspective on Livy himself. Uh, What qualities did he and others in his day value? Uh, What wars would a first century Roman find honorable? Why does Livy call certain rulers good and other rulers bad? Uh, And now, whether modern scholars pity him or patronize him, they will say that Livy's historical work is important not merely because of how much ground he covers, he's very, he's, he covers a lot of ground in his histories, but because it was very influential from the very beginning. Uh, all of the Romans, even the Romans that lived in Livy's day, read what he wrote. Um, the later historian, Tacitus, and the rhetorician, Quintilian, referred to Livy's work. And there's even a story about a man who traveled all the way from Spain to Rome just to look at Livy. It's kind of weird. Uh, but apparently, Livy was highly revered, um, and he was quite famous among certain groups of people and so and now he write he 's going to write a lot of things it 's a lot like herodotus uh, there 's going to be some fact probably mixed in with some fiction uh, or with some myth and it 's going to be really difficult to know just uh, for sure how much of livy 's history actually happened and how much of it is myth. Uh, but I think what's more important as we read Livy is not necessarily those facts in and of themselves or the myths in and of themselves. Uh, it's really the most valuable thing we can get from this is to see just how a Roman perceived his own history. We can see from the perspective of a first century Roman, uh, what, how he viewed history, what was his philosophy of history. And that in and of itself can teach us a lot of things. Um, You know, speaking of Libby's worldview and the worldview of the book, uh, you know, a lot of people today think that we can teach math or music or history from a so-called neutral perspective. Do you all understand what I'm saying when I say those sorts of things? What do I mean by that? That, uh, Go ahead, Marie. uh, That uh, it's not like related to any religion or anything, it's just being taught what's yeah, very good. Yeah, it's not. It, it, we can teach these things without having a uh, religious foundation under it. We can just teach math uh, without referring to the god of math. Or we can teach music without referring to the god of music. And so many people, when they teach... Uh, they want to put religion in one box, they want to put math in another box, music in another box, and so on. Is this possible to do? Can we really teach and educate effectively if we put everything in their neat little boxes and they have nothing to do with each other? Don't integrate? No, we can't. We can't. And all of us, whether we admit it or not, we have presuppositions that we already work with. That means we already have a religion uh, that determines our thinking. And because of those presuppositions, we will teach math or learn math either in belief or in unbelief. Uh, Every movie, every book, even the historical uh, ones, the books or movies, will either be on God's side or not on God's side. So when we read Livy or any historian, uh, we should not be thinking, is this true or false or not? Is this is this writing based on fact or myth? Now, it's okay to ask that question, but that shouldn't be the question that we should continuously be asking throughout the book. Uh, a standard like that means that we are thinking that neutral facts are what matter to us, and we don't want anyone to be the lord of history. No, we we just want there to be facts, whether or not God exists. We don't want to do that. Instead, we need to approach history asking questions like, is Christ the Lord of all things or not? Is he the Lord of history or not? Is he the Lord of the history of Rome or not? Uh, what is this historian saying? And of course, is it true? Is it true or not? But is it his interpretations true according to God's word or not? Does he think that Jesus is the Lord of history or not? So Livy is an historian. Right, Which means that he, as an historian, your job isn't just to jot the facts down on paper in list form and just give that to the reader to do with what they like. No, he he isn't just doing that, but he is, as an historian, interpreting facts in a certain way with a certain worldview. And even though his book isn't necessarily a religious or a theological book or a philosophical book per se, he cannot escape religion. He cannot escape theology or philosophy. None of us can. Anytime, what you learn in, um, what math class are y'all taking this year? Pre-algebra or Algebra One? Uh, that is not disconnected from religion, uh, theology, or philosophy. Okay? And, uh, and with Libby, as he tells the story of Rome... He's also telling us what he thinks about the gods' involvement in that story. Uh, He begins his work with a preface that uh, he says that he is going to be making moral judgments. He gives that out to you right away. He says there are fine things to take as models. So that means as a standard of good and bad. And then there's base things, bad things, rotten through and through to avoid. And so he's telling you up front that he is not a neutral historian. No, no historian is neutral. A lot of modern historians want to tell you that they're neutral, but they're not. And at least Livy's being honest. There's no such thing as a neutral historian. Uh, Livy uh, is really a lot more honest than many modern historians, and he tells us that he is interpreting the facts for us. He is helping us out. He wants us to come to history with some kind of moral standard, uh, whatever that is, for what is good and right, and he wants us to apply that standard to the past. So as Christians with a different moral ethic than a pagan Roman, we need to ask, well, what is Livy's moral standard? What is it? Is it a biblical standard? I think you already know the answer to this to some degree, right? No, it's not a biblical standard. Livy did not know the Lord. Uh, So when Livy praises uh, Servius Tullius as a good king, who he says reigned with humanity and justice, well, this tells us that Livy must have some idea of what makes a good king versus a bad king. And And he has some way of determining and distinguishing justice from injustice. And as you read through Livy, look for these sorts of statements, look for these moral judgments, and then based on what you know about the Bible, based on uh, your maturity in the faith, you can determine whether what Livy says is correct or incorrect according to the Bible. Um, so you are reading this, this history through a Christian worldview. And so when you take all of these facts and interpretations collectively and we put them all together, we're going to, by the end of the book, uh, have a pretty good idea of what sort of worldview Libby had. And, uh, you know, I would describe him as a moral pagan, kind of like Sophocles. He's a moral pagan. He believed in the gods. He believed in the plurality of gods. And that belief obviously affected his views on religion. It affected his views on morality among men. And uh, it affects what he thinks is the greatness of Rome. And so the Romans, just like the Greeks, were polytheistic, What does that mean when a a people is polytheistic? They believe in more than one God. They They worship more than one God. They pray to many gods. And even though Jupiter in Rome, which is also known as Zeus in the Greek world, is the head god, he's the god over all the other gods, the other gods are powerful as well. Uh, Yet these deities are not like the god of the Bible who is fully omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. Uh, the Roman gods were thought to have limita- uh, limitations. And what, Paul, what did Paul tell us these, who these gods are? Who are these gods really? Demon. They're demons, right. They're demons. Yeah, they're not as powerful as God. They are created beings, just like everything else in this world. Um, <clears throat> Livy uh, Livy's Living honest about how he describes them. He describes them as really strong, immortal humans. That's how he describes them. Um, they may be able to change people into animals and plants, uh, as Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses uh, tells us, but they are not always able to save their favorite city, as with Juno in the Aeneid, as we'll read in a few weeks. But because the gods are like us, that's the Roman belief, that the gods are like us but more powerful. Um, they have the same emotions that we do. That means that uh, as less powerful beings, we have to work to keep them happy. Okay? Because if you don't, they're going to get mad and do some terrible things to us. Or, you know, it may not even matter With uh, as with Odysseus. Uh, um, Oh, what's his name? Oedipus. It doesn't even matter. Oedipus even tried to appease the gods and do everything he can to get on their good side, but it didn't work. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. Now the gods can be appeased by proper ritual, so the Romans believed. Uh, they believe that by performing the right sacrifices at the right time, either praying or promising the god a share in the spoils. Let's say they want to go uh, the military wants to go take over a city and they grab all the spoils from that city. Well, they promised the gods to uh, share in those spoils if, the, go- if they, uh, the gods allow them to conquer the city. And so there's a lot of that going on in the early history of Rome. Um, in Livy's world, we also have to pay attention to omens. Uh, what's an omen? You might know what an omen is. Huh? curse. Like a sign. Well, it's kind of like a prophecy, but it's more of a uh, more of a bad prophecy. Something's going to happen. Uh, so, an omen. Uh, we have to pay attention to strange events, to plagues and natural disasters. Not because uh, not we don't remember. We don't have. To, we can't judge whether they're true or not. It's good to do that to a certain degree, but really, the point of seeing that is uh, to see what Livy thinks about it. Does he think that natural disasters have been brought about for a sov- for, for, uh, for good of uh, god 's people by a sovereign god? no, he doesn 't think that way. He thinks that the gods uh, are trying to tell us something through these disasters, uh, and if your average statesman can 't understand what a certain sign means when I say statesman, that means a, a congressman or someone high in the high up in the Roman government. If they can't understand what a certain sign by the gods mean, then what he was going to do, he's going to seek out one of the many varieties of priests out there whose job it is, is to read entrails, and they count birds, or they consult religious scrolls, or they, uh, they do all sorts of crazy things to try to uh, figure out what the gods are telling them. It's so weird. And so Livy wrote his history in a world which believed in all of these gods. Yet he doesn't focus on the gods the same way that Homer does or Virgil does. In the Iliad and the Aeneid, the gods play a major role in the action. So if Juno gets offended, uh, she is going to arrange a storm to throw Aeneas and his men off course. If Zeus is petitioned properly... He will turn the tide of the battle. But Livy doesn't give us the same behind-the-scenes view of the divine activity. What's more important to Livy is properly following the religious ritual. And so towards the end of book five, he tells the story of a young nobleman who, for the sake of performing a certain religious ceremony, he left the Roman army Hold up in the citadel. They're trapped in the citadel. And he walked right up through the enemy army of the Gauls. So they were all, you know, hunkered down in the middle of battle. They were, and the Gauls were way over here. They're trying to protect themselves. And this young nobleman who, uh, who felt like he had to appease the gods in some certain way to win this battle, he just, you know, jumped right up out of the trench and walked right up to the Gauls and went right through their camp. You know, he could have been shot, he could have been stabbed, and his head could have been cut off immediately, uh, but he did it anyway. And the Gauls were so impressed, they were so shocked that he did this, and they were so impressed that they let him carry out the ritual. And then they let him return safely to his camp. They didn't kill him. And so a little bit later, when Camillus begged the Romans to stay and to rebuild their city, he appealed to ritual, arguing that whenever they observed their religion properly, they fared well. So that's part of Livy's worldview. If you do the right things and you, in the religion of the gods, uh, the people always did well. The Romans always did well. If they remained faithful to the gods, then, the, then Rome will thrive and live. But if they didn't, the gods turned their favor away from them. So that's part of Livy's worldview. Um, and, uh, it's a, and a lot of people in Rome read Livy's work and they believed these things and this worldview that Livy uh, was presenting. And it's a fact that a nation is going to become like what it worships, right? A nation is going to become like what it worships. So with all of these uh, many, numerous, and, and faulty gods uh, taking charge up in the heavenly realm, uh, is it any wonder that there were so much strife and dissension and problems in the Roman government? It's not very surprising. Uh, why shouldn't the plebeians and the patricians have bickered and fought continually if they were just following the examples of the heavenly beings? The gods fought and bickered continually. Why wouldn't the people bicker and argue continually? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we become like what we worship. That's a Christian principle. That's looking at this through a biblical worldview. And we know from the last few Greek books we've read that uh, the gods were often very impulsive. Uh, they were unpredictable. They acted on a whim a lot of the times. And they were even lustful. So what was to prevent a king or a ruler was a human to do the exact same thing? Why not? Yet, it's at this very point that Livy shows us how inconsistent unbelief is. So, here, check this out. So, according to this worldview, there should be something wrong with uh, Sextus' rape of Lucretia. Okay? That's a, something that happens in the book. Uh, this girl gets raped. Uh, the gods did the exact same thing. They would rape people and rape other gods. Okay, but Livy still portrays, he still portrays Sextus in a negative light. He says that was a bad thing that Sextus did, right? What does that tell us? First of all, he has a moral code, right? There are good things and bad things, and apparently rape is bad. But what else does that tell us? He said we should be faithful to the gods, but the gods do this stuff all the time. But at the same time, he says, well, doing that is bad. What does that tell you? Huh? So the gods are bad. The gods are bad, but, but, but he's saying we still need to be faithful to them. We still need to worship them. Is he being very consistent in his worldview? He says, on one hand, you know, the gods are mighty and powerful. We need to worship them. All hail Zeus or all hail Jupiter. And on the other hand, he says, well, rape is bad. But that very god rapes people all the time, according to their tradition. So that tells you how inconsistent when you. Uh, when you do not believe the God of Scripture, and when you do not believe uh, the basics, the basis of the foundation of logic and truth, it it shows you how unbelief inconsistent uh, how uh, un- inconsistent unbelief really is, right? And so, um, let's let's do some other examples uh, that's going to flush out Livy's moral code a little bit more. Like I, As I said earlier, in his prologue, he says that the purpose of history is to teach us what good things to imitate and what bad things to avoid. And so he also has very strong opinions on what bravery is. He hates deceit. He hates treachery. And how much worse those things are in his time than they were before. And so, for example, when he talks about the reign of Tarquin the Proud, he says that during a certain military campaign, the tyrant resorted to using, quote, the unRoman and disgraceful method of deceit and treachery. Well, once again, the gods did this all the time. Why would he say that this is disgrace disgraceful and unRoman? The gods of the Romans did this all the time. So that's another example of the inconsistency there. Um, in Book Three, Livy is uh, saddened by the loss of the good old days. You know, anybody? I guess you're old enough to really do that yet. I'm starting to be like that. Oh, I remember the good old days uh, of when uh, we used to have a certain thing called a, a house phone. I saw a video the other day, like uh, in someone's house, there was like a phone jack on the wall, kind of like this. And like this uh, father and his three like daughters that were like, they were like 10, 8, and 6. He was... Pointing to it, he's like, "What do you think that is?" And they had no idea. They had no idea what a phone jack is. So they were like, "Oh, maybe." Uh, I forgot what funny things they said. Uh, huh? There you have it. There's the example. So back in the day, back in the good old days, we used to have this thing called a house phone. It was a phone that was in the house. None of us had cell phones. Oh, I know. Now you know what I'm talking about. Well. This was a wired phone, so how is it gonna get phone how are you gonna get phone service without plugging it into something? So the house was wired for telephone service and you would plug it into the phone jack. But no one knew what that was. So you guys are too young to really deal with the good old days yet. Yeah? You don't have good old days as of yet. But you will. Uh, what, five years ago? Two years ago? Yeah, okay. seven years ago. Whatever there was in school. Oh, well, That was a long, long time ago. So, Livy is also saddened by the loss of what he calls the good old days. He says this, Fortunately, however, in those days, authority, both religious and secular, was still a guide to conduct, and there was yet no sign of our modern skepticism which interprets solemn compacts, such as are embodied in an oath or a law to suit its own convenience, End quote. So at this point, Christians, as Christians, we can agree with Libby. Uh, Deceit and treachery, he's basically saying people used to be able to trust one another back in the good old days. People used to not be as prone to lie, cheat, and steal from each other back in the good old days. But things have really been going downhill lately, and he's really sad about that. And we can certainly agree with Livy. Deceit and treachery and oath-breaking uh, and ripping people off, they are sins. They're indeed sins. But do you think Livy would call it a sin as such as we do? No, he doesn't think of it quite that way. Uh, and just, but at the same time, just because Livy was an unbeliever doesn't mean that he's going to be wrong about sin at every single point, right? Right? Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So God has given all men a certain level of common grace, and it is by that means that Libby was not only able to write, he could write well, uh, but he could also get some moral things right. But sometimes he values certain qualities that aren't very biblical, right? So during the reign of, of Servetus Tullius, some prophecies were made about a certain Heifer. Y'all know what a heifer is? Cow. Yes, a, a, a female, female cow. cow, right? And so uh, he says that whatever nation sacrifices the heifer to Diana will possess the imperial power. And since a Sabine owns the heifer, a, a crazy Roman priest tricks the Sabine so that he, the Roman, can sacrifice the heifer himself and thus secure the imperial power of Rome. He could be the emperor. And so, <clears throat> what is, Livy wrote this down for us to read, but what does he think of that? What does he think of that action? Uh, well, although Livy doesn't openly approve that sort of thing, uh, he tells the story with what you could tell is like a hint of admiration. And he concludes that all Rome, including the king, uh, they were delighted. So he was delighted about it. It was, a, it was a good thing for Rome, even though it wasn't a good thing in general. It wasn't the right thing to do. And so, I mean, think about it. Biblically speaking, uh, it's not really considered loving to your neighbor to slaughter somebody else's cow without their permission, right? Put yourself in an agrarian farming world. I mean, would it be okay to slaughter their cow, uh, your neighbor's cow, without asking them first? Would it be okay to jump in your neighbor's car with the keys and drive down the road and crash it into, go for a joyride and, uh, you know, uh, dr- drive it into a telephone pole and be like, hey, I'm sorry. Totally. That's totally right. No, it's not right. It's not right. But but Libby talks about this with a hint of admiration. It's not right, but huh, good for you. I'm kind of glad you did it. So uh, that's the kind of the, the, some of the contradictions that we see in uh, Livy's ethics. Okay? Um, also, uh, Livy valued the virtue of Lucretia, uh, who killed herself for the sake of her honor and her chastity. Remember she was raped and she believed, well now I'm not chaste and my honor is gone, therefore I shall I will kill myself. And uh, is it is it a sin for people to kill themselves? Yes, yes. yes it's murder. It's murder. It doesn't matter if it's on yourself; it's still murder, right? But Livy um, uh, sees that as a noble action, um, even though uh, in Christianity uh, that is listed as a sin, and that's noble—that's not noble at all. Yes. What if you're killing yourself to save other people's lives? Well, uh, that might be different. That could be different. I don't know. If you sacrifice yourself. Uh, to save the lives of other people, then uh, yes, that would be a noble action. Didn't Christ do that? Yeah. So, but if you just kill yourself for the sake, well, you know, I've lost my honor. I've lost my dignity. There's no point yes, there's no reason to live anymore. Uh, that's a problem. And so, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude here. So, Livy's belief system uh, it was founded not upon biblical foundations and biblical morals, but it was founded upon Roman morals and many gods. Those ideas sharply contrast with the Christian belief in the God who is both one and three. So the triune God is most definitely many, right? But he is also one. Uh, And we should only serve him. Our God is also infinite and infinitely holy, He's infinitely wise, just, and good. So we don't have to fear that he uh, is out to get us because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Um, And any judgments he gives are good judgments. They're right judgments, unlike the gods of the Romans. And they're well-deserved, for he is the standard for good and evil. And that's very different than the gods changing their minds and destroying whoever or whatever they want just because they feel like it. And so God's law, is the picture of God's character. And because God's character doesn't change, His standards do not change. And His character is consistent. His character is righteous. And therefore, His law is consistent and righteous. Now, sometimes Livy's notion of, of good and evil sometimes agrees with the Christian view. And this is because of the common grace of God. Uh, Therefore, as Christians, we can still profit from reading Livy, which is why you take the time in this class to do it. Uh, And where his standards agree with ours, we can approve of or condemn the standards he approves or condemns. And of course, when Livy doesn't agree with the Bible, we shouldn't agree with him. And so, if Livy were alive today, uh, what kind of person would he be? Like, if you just teleported him, I teleport, but uh, took him from... You know, 10 A.D. to 2020 A.D. or 2023 A.D., whatever year it is. Um, if we just transplant him from there to here, uh, how, what do you think, um, what group do you think he would be associated with? The dead. The dead? The dead. No, he'd still be alive. Really? Yeah, like we would just teleport him from that time to this one and he'd still be alive. I don't know, think about that. He would probably be a part of, he would probably be a Republican, right? He would probably promote traditional values and and good citizenship and patriotism, and if he learned to like America, he would no doubt uh, put the American flag on a flagpole in his front yard, Um, and uh, uh, he would be a good old boy. He'd be a good old uh, patriotic, He well sure there's that too, but just for trying to give us a category of maybe the type of person Livy is and his standards, uh, I think he would be more on the right side of things, like far as like left and right uh, politically, right. Uh, But if we pressed him on why he was so patriotic and why he. Uh, defended traditional values, I don't think he would be able to defend his standards very well because they are based upon gods who are not infinite. In fact, he is very similar to many Americans who attempt to be good citizens and attempt to be good neighbors apart from the Word of God. Right? And so, like Livy, uh, Americans that think this way know that it is wrong to murder people. But they can't really defend their belief that it's really wrong. Uh, they believe that America is a great nation that has descended from great people. And, uh, but they can't explain why. They can't explain even why they have standards of goodness. They don't really know where it comes from. Um, and so at the end of this, uh, Livy, as Livy said by Common Grace... Uh, we, can, uh, we can learn and we can understand our surroundings, but the only way that we are going to really uh, interpret history uh, rightly and according to reality is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins and by having a biblical worldview given to us by the Holy Spirit uh, to live out all of Christ in all of life.